Alright. Shimshon. Find my glasses. All right, we're from somewhere. All right, let's begin with Shimshon. So last week there was one main point about Shimshon, which is that God sending Shimshon to redeem Israel is not in the story a response to people's asking for redemption. What is glaring in the story, glaring in terms of you look at the context of the book of Shoftim is that this particular story breaks the pattern. It's the only story in which we have three of the four elements, namely the sinfulness, the punishment, and the sending of the Redeemer. But we're missing one of the four components, which is calling out for help. That appears in every other place in the book of Shoftim except here. From this we conclude that the people are not calling out for help. And actually in the story, my point, one of the points I made from a literary perspective of the story, is that not calling out for help, for redemption, is mirrored in the story by the story of this couple that have no children and don't make any request to have a child. This breaks the pattern of that we, of course, the foundational stories of Breshit, in which one in one form or another, in the three instances of, well, the four cases, the four matriarchs, three of the four have no children right away. Uh, the only one that does is Leah and there the Torah explains God intervenes on her behalf because God sees she is uh, hated or whatever um, and Leah herself says God saw that I was hated and God saw that God saw my suffering so the, there is a sense that she's also in a sense crying out either with words or silently or whatever but in all the other cases somebody's trying to do something in the case of Sarah she asked Abraham to take a, uh, another woman to have a child and should be the mother of that child. Yitzchak prays for Rivka. Rachel tries many ways to have children. She gives uh, her servant to Yaakov. She negotiates to get these uh, trophim. She has Jacob intervene initially on her behalf. I believe taking of the uh, the mandrakes. I'm sorry, the mandrakes. She is also. I think the trophim is also to have a child. So with Rachel, she tries every which way. When you come to uh, Mrs. Manoach. There's no, there's nothing, there's no requesting. So what's interesting is that there's the passivity in this chapter, both in terms of the people's situation of being handed over to the Philistines and in terms of the personal situation of the childlessness of the couple, no one is, seems to be concerned one way or the other. So what's glaring in the chapter is the silence and not requesting, which raises the question, if no one's asking for a Redeemer, why is God sending a Redeemer in the first place? To which my answer is, God sends a Redeemer because it's not that God is so concerned about responding to Israel but God has God's own concerns namely the Philistines have no rights to ward it over these, uh, these, these people because after all at the end of the day God is still their king whether they admit it or not so the Plishtim essentially are supplanting God and God is, God is the enemy of the Philistines however from the other perspective the people don't, don't want to be saved so what God is doing in the story, this is one of the keys, is that God is creating somebody who one might say is actually God's, is God's child. And that's the innuendo in the story of Vayavo, Malach, El Ha'isha. But, and that's the point of being a Nazir. And not just a plain old Nazir, but to be born a Nazir. A Nazir in, 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 a, in a utero, a Nazir before birth. The point is, he's not, born, he's not born as a Jew, one might say. He's born already outside. 
and so that that is actually one of the keys to the story and then we had it reflected upon this idea of the Nazir in general what is the Nazir and I pointed out that the Nazir is perceived by different can be perceived in, 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 a, in a variety of ways one is to sort of uh, try to limit the degree to which the Nazir is different one is to see the Nazir in the general framework regular Jew just taking on a couple of additional restrictions but fundamentally there isn't a difference in kind between the Nazir on the one hand and uh, everybody else on the other oh, yeah, everybody has 613 commandments the Nazir has 616 commandments that I think is more or less what the Mishnah in the tractate Nazir is trying to is trying to argue the Mishnah for, for whatever reasons is interested I think in, in normalizing the, uh, the, uh, the Nazir I think from the other perspective it's interesting I'm not sure he would admit this but what's very interesting is the Ramban the Ramban in his parish on the Torah the very famous Ramban in the beginning of Hashat Kedoshim Kedoshim to you right so the Ramban says that Kedoshim to you for the Ramban doesn't mean to as Rashi would have it to put in safeguards in order to make sure we keep the mitzvot because Oshim to you for the Ramban is a separate commandment in other words there are mitzvot in the Torah they're, they're, they are in a certain sense in, uh, necessary but not sufficient because you can keep all the mitzvot says the Ramban and still be a bum so therefore therefore the Torah commands us on top of everything else it's necessary but not enough Kedoshim to you we should be live a holy life the Ramban asks the question who is where is the model for this holiness who is the Kadosh Ramban has the interesting answer this is the Nazir the, Naz- the Torah calls the Nazir Kadosh so the Ramban says that the Nazir is the model for what it means to be a holy person it's interesting because Rashi on the other hand thinks the Nazir is problematic and there are many other sources that see the problems in the, in, 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 with the Nazirites but for the Ramban, the Nazir is different, wholly, wholly other, one might say. So that path of seeing the Nazir is different, of being the Kadosh, that suggests to us that the Nazir is not perceived by the Ramban, essentially, at least in that commentary, as your standard Jew has three more mitzvot. The Nazir is going, is beyond. The Nazir is a different model of what it means to be a, 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 a different mode of living. And so I argued last week that taking that idea not from the Ramban but in general and I pointed out last week that in the Chumash there's somebody else whom the Torah calls a, a, uh, a Nazir it's not in the halachic sense of Nazir in terms of practice but it's more the personality type and, the, and that's Joseph Joseph is called the Nazir both by Jacob the tribe of Joseph are called in the, he's called the Nazir by Moshe at the end of the Torah and we reflected last week briefly upon the interesting parallels between the Joseph story on one hand and the Shimshon story on the other. They're rather striking. The one who's separate from his brothers, who's separate from everybody, one might say. Because in the case of Joseph, he's not just he's separate from his brothers. He's also separate from the, uh, from the uh, Egyptians, too. He's living in Egypt, but he's not an Egyptian. He's living in, with his brothers, but, he's not, he, but he can't live with them. And therein lies the question where does Joseph end up and in the case of Joseph he ends up with his with his with his brothers with his family with Israel with the patriarchs matriarchs but the real the real connect, the, the reconnection to the family takes place after his death that's how the book ends 
take me back after I die, take me back with you after I die. And pointed out that with Shimsha you have exactly the same thing, which is on one hand he's born into the he's born he lives with the Philistines. His whole life is with the Pushtim. He's not a, he's not a Philistine, obviously, because he fights against the Philistines. Is he a Jew? He's not with ever he's he's never with the Jews and the only interaction he has with them is actually negative. Because the tribe of Judah tries to kill him or tries to hand him over to be killed. So and the last verse of the Shimshon story is after his death, they took his body and they buried him back in it with his with his with his father. So you get a sense that even though his entire life, in the case of Shimshon, he's a Nazir, but there is a sense that he's, he's, he's unified at least after his death. He becomes part of the Jewish people, though it takes it's only after he's after he's dead. During his lifetime, he's the ultimate Nazir. That was the summary of what we did last week. And then to add one more point, very important point about the Nazir. I want to say one additional thing I didn't say last week, which is that the Nazir in the Torah is somebody, man or woman, who takes a vow. The word for taking a vow is the word Yafli. So it means that it's something you take upon yourself. It also in the Torah, of course, is time-bound. It's limited to a certain amount of time. And the Chumash spends most of its time telling you how, you how you complete the vow. In the case of Shimshon, it's exactly the opposite. Number one, it's not time-bound. It's his entire life from before birth. More importantly, it's not a function of a vow that he takes. He has nothing to do with it. It is something he's born into. It's not even a vow his mother takes. His mother is instructed by this emissary, this angel or whatever, to... Uh, to uh, observe certain things before her, before the child is born, etc. So it's not, it's not, it's not voluntary in the case of Shimshon. Interesting is that in this first chapter, which talks about the birth of Shimshon, so the husband, who, who actually comes across as a basically a blithering idiot, comes across in the story. He doesn't seem to know what's, which, which end is up, and the God has, seems to have little interest in actually telling him very much either. So. Towards the end of this chapter, after the angel comes back a second time to the woman, not to him, and says essentially to him, who's asking questions, do everything that we did. Which is verse number 14 of chapter 13, 548 in the JPS translation. So, afterwards, do everything I told the woman. The woman should do whatever I told her to do. So in verse number 15, the Banoach does not realize yet that this person is actually not just a person, but an emissary from God, a kind of an, an angel. Banoach has no understanding of that still. Banoach still had no clue. He didn't know, says the text, that this was an angel. So Manoach says to the angel, what is your name? If he had known he's an angel, he probably wouldn't ask that question, what is your name? But he doesn't seem to know that. So what's your name? Tell me. If it does happen that we actually have a child, I want to remember you. I want to honor you in some way. Whatever. Whatever. Lama Zetishawishmi for who Peli. 
It's a very interesting verse. The verse, Lama Zetishawishmi, he's not the first person to ask an angel, What is your name? Our patriarch Jacob asked exactly the same question when he wrestled with the Ish. <coughs> there, the answer to Yaakov is, Lama Zetishawishmi, Vayevarech Otosham. So the, the Ish said to Yaakov, Why do you ask my name? And Jacob's response in the next verse is, Vayikro Yaakov Sheba Makom Pniel. Then Jacob understands right away. Don't ask my name. So Yaakov says, Oh, I've seen God face to face and I have lived. Over here, it's interesting that when you read this, you remember the other verse. It's almost word for word the same, except here in the book of Shoftim, the book of Shoftim has two words. Lama said to Shalishmi, who Peli? It is Peli. What does Peli mean? Peli. So the translation, so here the JPS translation, not the most reliable one in the world, translates, it is unknowable. Could be so. The thing is, the thing is wondrous. Pele means wondrous. Pele, right? So to be wondrous means, we have in the Psalm, Psalm 139, it's, it's beyond me. It could mean that. So don't ask me my name. In other words, when someone, well, don't ask me my name for it is Peli. You, how, do, how do you read that? Don't ask me my name. But I'll tell you my name anyway. Peli. Or don't ask me my name because it's too, it's too, it's beyond your comprehension. What's interesting is, no doubt, the who Peli is actually, or maybe that's my name. My name is the one who is, who is, who is performing miracles. The names of the angels, I presume, are related to their, to their mission. What's interesting is, that for who Peli, I suspect, is a play on the Chumash. Because what, what does the Torah say about a Nazir? How does one become a Nazir in the first place? Isha Isha, Ki Yafli Lindor Neder Nazir. Yafli. The Rambam's book, which talks about vows and oaths and all that, say for Hafla. So Hafla, Yafli is to pronounce. So the Nazir is actually one who's Mafli. In the case of this particular case, though, the Nazir himself, namely Shibshon, did not pronounce the vow, nor did his mother. It was pronounced, one might say, and placed upon him by God, and God's emissary is this angel, this Malach Hashem. So, Lomazet Tishawish Mivu Peli is interesting. In other words, don't ask me my name means you don't understand who I am. You think I'm just a person you're going to honor, but you don't understand that's not about me. I'm someone on a mission from God. And the, the, what is the nature of the mission? For who Peli? And my mission is the imposition of the Nazarite vow on this child. Now, last week we, I, there was a brief reflection on what does it mean to say that this child is actually God's, God, God's child. And here's what I think it means. For our purposes, what it actually means in the story. I think what it means... And this is a very interesting question about Shimshon in general. Shimshon's behavior, let's put it this way. <laughs> Shimshon's behavior <coughs> is not one that we would normally associate with the holiest person in the world. I mean, this so-called Shofet, as he's called, he's called the Shofet twice, but essentially he spends most of his life cavorting with the Philistine women. It's pretty much what he does. But he's not out, you know, killing Philistines. The question is, 
very simple question. What does the Book of Shoftim think of this behavior? This is a very good question. What does what is the attitude one should take towards towards Shimshon? And I, I would I, I would I would argue for the following position, which is my what I believe. I believe that initially, that fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with Shimshon. In other words, I think these behaviors are not frowned upon by the Book of Shoftim. I think there's no problem whatsoever, because that's the way that's the way he fights his wars. Shimshon, remember. Shimshon can only fight, this is a very important point about Shimshon, he fights by himself, which makes total sense, because no one else wants to be redeemed. What are you going to take the army? They don't want to fight. Nobody's interested in fighting. So therefore, he cannot conscript people to his so-called army. It's an army of one. Actually, the truth is, he does have soldiers. He has soldiers. But they're not human beings. In the story of Shimshon, he does have soldiers. Forces of nature. He has God's army. He has the forces of nature. He has the foxes. He has the jawbone of Adas. He has essentially nature on his side. But he has no people on his side. I would argue that fundamentally the text does not condemn him. Because this is what he's... He has his set of mitzvot. They're very limited. Basically, he has... Maybe we could limit it to two words. Kill, uh, kill Philistines. That's, it. That's your mission. That's why you were born into this world. To, to kill my enemies, says God, to kill the Philistines. That's what the text seems to say. When does he get in trouble? When, when actually can he be condemned? He's condemned in the story when something happens to Shimshon. A very bad thing happens to Shimshon. He falls in love with somebody. He falls in love with a woman in Nachal Sorek, her name is Delilah. When he falls in love with Delilah, that's a problem. As we'll see shortly. Because once he falls in love with Delilah, you can't fall in love with the enemy. You can't sleep with the enemy. But you can't fall in love with the enemy. And that's the, that's what, the moment he falls in love with her, that's very dangerous. Because then, if he falls in love with her, he could do something very bad, which is, he could betray his, his own mission. This is, of course, what he does. He could give away the secret. The idea of secrets is very important in the Shimshon story, as it is in the Joseph story. And once he gives away the secret, the point is, of course, he loses his strength, but it's not so much because they cut his hair. The cutting of the hair is the termination, the temporary termination of the, of the Nazarite vow. That is true. But it's not the cutting of the hair per se, I think, that necessarily weakens him. The cutting, the, the cutting of the hair, as the, the violation of the Nazarite vow, is a concretization of the deeper problem. And the deeper problem is he has betrayed his God by giving away his, his, his deep secret, his, his most intimate secret. And once you do that, but, but as long as he doesn't do that, as long as he doesn't do that, he is perfectly okay in my view. Now the Gemara, the Mishnah actually is very interesting. The Mishnah intractates Soto, because that's where the Mishnah actually mentions Shimshon, and the Mishnah talks about the concept of Mida Kedeged Mida. Quid pro quo. What you get is what you gave. So the point is, in the case of Shimshon, the Mishnah says Shimshon followed his eyes and therefore he was he, he was blinded. To this we could add that Shimshon said, as we'll see this very soon, that I want to marry this particular woman, he Ashrabi and I, she's suitable in my eyes. He followed his eyes, and at the end he was he, he was blinded, he lost his eyes. The question is, so the Mishnah seems to be condemning Shimshon's behavior. And I would argue that 
we could accept what the Mishnah says from one perspective, but we could also make the good argument, I think, that all that is true, but only, only, only retroactively. In other words, the fact that he gets involved with Delila and that gets him blinded, that's true. But that's only because he falls in love with Delila. Till that point, I'm just, this is my reading, I don't get a sense in the story that he's being condemned. So from one, that's a very important question. Is he being condemned? If he's your standard Jew, was a few moments vote. Yeah, from, his, from the standpoint of the standard behavior, it is dubious. No, 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 no question about it. But maybe he's not held to the standard behavior. That's my point. He's, not, he's, he's a different Shulchan Aruch. He's not the Jewish code, code book. He's basically not Jew. He's a Nazarite. He has his own laws. So what? Yeah. Why did he tell to us that he doesn't tell his parents when he scoops out the... I'll get to, we'll get there. It's all related to the same thing. We'll get, we'll get to that business very soon. Okay. First, let's get back to our friend Manoach over here. So, Vayikach Manoach et Gedihu Aizim v'yet Amincha v'yal al-Atzur Hashem u'mafli l'asot The text wants to emphasize u'mafli l'asot u'manoach v'yishtoroim Okay? It says, Manoah took the kid and the meal offering, offered them up on the rock to God. A marvelous thing happened while Manoah and his wife looked on. Amazing. So the angel ascends to the fire up to heaven. It's a wondrous event. And the angel did not appear again to Manoach and his wife. I think the writer has a sense of humor. In other words, he didn't come back. Then Manoach realizes it must be an angel. So now we have the brilliant insight of Manoach coming up right now. We will certainly die. We have seen God. She says, listen dear, God wanted to kill us, but God got involved from all this routine of coming to us, appearing to us, taking our sacrifice. I said before, blithering idiot. Okay, but that's the point. I mean, it's not, the point of it I think is very interesting, and that is, it's not that she has this enormous insight over here. It's that, I think here it's the opposite. Here it's that he understands nothing. And I think the point of it is to reinforce the first point, which is, we can presume, I think, that in these societies, the, the man, in this case the husband, is more representative of society in general than is the woman. So the point is, it's, this is what we're talking about. This is the generation we're talking about. They have no interest and they have no insight and no understanding. But God is still concerned with the Philistines. So God is going to send a deliverer to Israel to save them, not so much to save Israel, but to get back at the Philistines. But it can't be from Israel, it's got to be outside. And this person will be the, the ultimate loner. Shimshon is the ultimate loner. He's going to fight his wars, but he's going to fight his wars. He can't fight them in the name of Israel either. He's not going to fight them because they are repressing Israel. This is very key to the story. When you, when you reflect upon it, it's also simple, actually, truth be told. 
why is he, why is, why is Shimshon, what is the basis of Shimshon fighting the Philistines? Always the same basis, which is what? It's always personal. It's always personal. It's all about his, his relationships. It's about his wife, it's about cheating him, it's about killing his wife. It's, a, it's all personal. He personalizes everything. There's no sense whatsoever in the story, certainly not in Shimshon's part, that he's fighting them because they're oppressing the Jewish people. He never mentions that, he never suggests that any, at any place. It's not about that at all. He seeks excuses or pre- pretexts to fight the Philistines. It's interesting that, of course, in the next verse, the woman gives birth. The woman gave birth. Interesting, it doesn't say that Menach went to his wife, by the way. It says the angel went to his wife. She gives birth. And she called the name Shimshon. Spirit of the, of the God moved within him in the encampment of Dan between Sarah and Eshtar. So it's interesting that Shimshon is from Shevet Dan. That's very interesting, actually. Shimshon is from Dan. This was noticed by the, by the Midrash, actually by Rashi, an interesting place, and that is when Jacob is blessing his sons. When Yaakov blesses his sons at the end of the book of Breshit, so there's a very strange verse. So he blesses all the, he blesses all the sons. Some don't get the greatest blessing, okay? But he, he acknowledges all of them. They're all included. When it comes to the tribe of Don, there's a very interesting verse. Don yadina mo kiachad shiftei Yisrael. Don will judge or avenge his people like, like one of the tribes of Israel. Kiachad shiftei Yisrael. Strange verse. Yehi don nachash derech shififon orach. Don is a snake and a serpent that crawls on the ground. He bites the heel of the horse and the rider falls off. That's the blessing of Don. And the next three words in the Chumash, O God, I pray for your redemption. It's actually a very interesting set of verses because what does it mean? Is that part of Don's blessing? Is it a separate blessing? What is it? Let's, let's start first with what does Rashi say? There is a Medrash says the following. That Jacob was looking into the future. And he saw, he saw Shimshon. He's thinking of, he's blessing the tribe of Don. So there's one great judge of the tribe of Don, which is Shimshon. And Shimshon meets a very unhappy end. Shimshon is, is, is he dies together with the Philistines at the end of the story. So when, Jacob is seeing the fate of Shimshon. He is crying unto God and saying, when he sees the death of, of Shimshon, he cries unto God and says, Lishuat Hakibiti Hashem. That's the Midrash. Now the question is, what does the Midrash try to say? What is the... We don't take it literally, but what, 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 is it, what does it mean? So it struck me something very interesting about the tribe of Don. Two things that are interesting about the tribe of Don. One of which is, I think... One of which emerges from Jacob's blessing. And the other emerges from the, how Don is situated within the Torah. Jacob's blessing, Jacob compares Don to a very interesting thing. Jacob compares Don to a, to a, to a nachash, to a snake, to a shifty phone, right? 
Yidanachash Awe Derech Shififon Awe Yorah A Shififon from the Hebrew from the story of the, the primordial snake Nachash HaKadmoni Hu Yishuf Charosh Ve'atatu Shufenu Okay, right? The snake will bite you in the heel Yishuf and you will smash him in the head That's Yishuf So the snake is called the Shififon and there, Hanosheikh Ikvesus, the snake will bite the heel. That's what snakes do. The heel of the horse, and the rider is falling off. So the, the tribe of Don is compared to a snake. Now the truth of the matter is, when we think about the different animals that the, some of the tribes are compared to, I mean, I don't think being compared to a snake necessarily would be perceived as a wonderful blessing. And that's, you know, a lion is another story. A lion, a horse, maybe even a wolf. But a snake, I mean. So what is it about the snake? What, what in the Medrash sees at Shimshon? What is it about the snake? It strikes me there's something about the snake that's interesting in the book of Genesis, which is that the snake is the animal that's completely alone. Even in the beginning, both in the in the curse of the snake, Aurora Tomiko Abema, but even the description of the snake, the whole story of the snake, what what is driving the snake in that, that first story in the second creation narrative what, what is motivating the snake what, what is snake the snake is smarter is more clever than all the animals the man and the woman are arumim and he's arum in other words the snake is seeing himself the snake says about himself I'm not really an animal I'm really separate from all the animals I'm so much smarter I'm more human than I am animal there are Romim Amorum. Okay, it's the same word. Maybe different meanings, but the same word. And the punishment is also that way. Aurora Tamikol Abed. Give Aurumikol. Aurumikol Aurumikol. In other words, the idea of some creature that fits in no place, actually. It doesn't, in a sense, doesn't inhabit this world. He lives in the dust, which is the death. Living death. He's not part of this world. He's completely outside. So it's interesting that the tribe of Don is actually compared to that. The tribe of Don is a Nachash, is a Shififon Aleyorah. So the Medrash sees in this description of Don, connects it to Shimshon, because Shimshon is the person, the warrior, who is completely and totally, he fights on his own. As powerful as he may be, he fights by himself. He never, he has no army. He's just one solitary person. The idea of the solitary person, that's, that's, that's what Shimshon represents. The second half of the verse is also very interesting. The snake bites the source and the rider falls off. And then Yaakov said, One of the most mysterious verses in the Bible. Many, many years ago, I offered a suggestion about the meaning of 30 years ago, more. And since then I've come up with nothing better, so I'll tell you what I think it means. So... So, I think it means this. The question is, what is Vishuatri Giviti Hashem doing in the middle of the blessings? So, Jacob cries out, I, I, God, I, I wait, await your salvation. <coughs> and then we'll get back to the next chapter of Shimshon. I think it's like this. Yaakov is blessing his children who are in, uh, who are in, in the land of Egypt, in exile. He, Yaakov knows they're in exile. Yaakov was very afraid to go there. I'm not sure the kids understand it, but he understands it. And now he's talking about the tribe of Don. And he talks about how Don will bring redemption. 
And as he's saying those words, he's remembering something. Which is, that in the book of Breshit, there is a covenantal promise. Covenantal promise is, Abraham, your descendants will be gerim and abused and slaves, right? For many years. And then God says to Abraham, but the nation that enslaves them, I will, I will, I will, I will be done. I will avenge. So now Yaakov is sitting in the land of Egypt, and Yaakov understands that the land of Egypt is going to be the place of exactly these things: Geirut, Avdut, and Inui, which is the first two chapters. of exactly how the Torah represents Mitzrayim. So Yaakov says, "Here I am talking about the end of days. That someday the tribe of Don will bring about redemption in the end of days." But who will bring about redemption now? Who will bring about redemption now from the land of Mitzrayim, where we are surely to be enslaved, oppressed, and, 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 and gave him? And the blessing actually of Don, who bites the horse, the horse's heel, and the rider falls off. But the horse and rider in the Bible are exactly the symbol of, of which country? It's Mitzrayim. So he, so he cries out to God, Hashem, O God, I await your present salvation. Forget about the end of days. I await your present salvation. Did God answer Jacob's prayer or not? Of course God answered Jacob's prayer. It's worth It's called the horse and rider are thrown to the yam. What's the next verse? Aziv is Imrad Ka. It's exactly what Jacob had requested. And actually, the Shirat Hayam, not only does it have Susa, Susa, Rochvo, and not only does it have God's Yeshua, but not only that, Shirat Hayam is the place where it is emphasized over and over again that the God who delivers Israel of the yam is Hashem with this particular name. Yeshuach HaKiviti Hashem is striking for a different reason in the Chumash because it's the only place outside of when Yosef first comes down to Egypt and God is helping him that the name Hashem appears in every other place it's Elohim the only time you have the personal God is Jacob's statement Yeshuach HaKiviti Hashem so that's exactly Shirat Hayam the point of Shirat Hayam is not that God redeemed us it's that this particular name of God redeemed us Hashem Yishmael Chamah Hashem Shema. That's what I said 30 years. I like it. <laughs> what can I tell you? The problem is, I'm not sure it's true for one simple reason. Because it's so unbelievably clever that those things are sometimes not true. It's not so simple. But I think it actually is true. It's a kind of stream of consciousness, you know what I mean? It's exactly all the elements, it's the promise. And what's even more interesting is this that the reason, in other words, it happens sometimes. Sometimes some people have an understanding of something, but no one else understands it. And then what he, you can't even explain it, actually. In other words, what's Jacob going to say? What would Jacob say to his children? Someday God's going to redeem us. Redeem us from what? It's great here. What's the problem? They love it there. We're doing great. What are you talking about? Jacob, is, Jacob understands that the exiles are because Jacob experienced exile. He knows what it is. In the house of Lava. He understands it perfectly, but nobody else understands it. So it's actually a prayer to God 
to save us, God, you got to save us, but who else? He can't even explain it, because save us from what? Only he understands the need for salvation. No one, no one has a problem. So therefore, he subsumes it between the blessings of Don and the next blessing, which is God. It's in between them, actually, but it's connected, of course. It's connected to Don. That's why it's so enigmatic, because he doesn't actually spell it out fully. But the context, I think, explains what it means. That's, anyway, the Midrash, though, does it cut? The Midrash, Rashi, and Chumash, ties this up to Shibshav. The idea of the, the snake, which is the one who's completely and totally alone. And there's something else about the tribe of Don and Shimshon, which is this. Shimshon is very interesting in terms of the positioning, in terms of the Shoftim. Okay? The book of Judges. There is, there are little judges and there are big judges. The big judges are four. There is Dvorah. There is Gidon. There is Yiftah. And there is Shimshon who in the book of Shmuel seems to be called Bedan, by the way. Bedan. Shimshon, one might say, is the last judge. It's true that Shmuel talks of himself as being a judge in the book of Shmuel. But in the narrative of the book of Shoftim, I think it strikes all of us that the last judge is actually Shimshon. And Shimshon, of course, dies. He kills himself together with the Philistines. But there is no one to carry on Shimshon's role. At the end of the story of Shimshon, dovetails very nicely with the end of this book, which makes a very simple point. The period of the judges, this kind of leadership, cannot work. This can't work. Therefore, we need a different kind of leadership, whether it's the priest, whether it's the prophet, whether it's the king, whatever. But the judges, in those days, there's no king. Everybody does whatever they want. The tribe of Don is the last tribe. The tribe of Don, the Chumash refers to the tribe of Don, when you travel through the desert, ma'asef l'chol ha'machanot. It's the end. The tribe, the, the, the tribe of Don is the last, as we travel through the desert, it's the last tribe. I'm wondering whether this too is not part of the idea of Shimshon, being from Shevet Don. Shevet Don, which is a problematic tribe in the book of Judges for other reasons, because they very much do their own thing. The tribe of Don does its own thing in a very inappropriate way, but with the... With with the, with Peso Micha but but it's yeah so I'm wondering whether I mean it's clear in the book of Shoftim that the fact that Shimshon is from Don is very significant now Don also means to, 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 to judge or to take vengeance which is what God is doing over here in the story the event Shimshon of what might say is God's avenging angel Shimshon is one that God creates to avenge God's for God's purposes not for our purposes not for Israel's purposes but for God's purposes. Okay, that's what I want to say briefly about the first, the birth of Shimshon in chapter 13. Now let's move on to the next... Cha- yes? Anything about his name? The name? Oh yes, plenty, of them, plenty about the name later on. We'll get to it. Yeah, no doubt. The name is very significant. Of course. We'll see if we have... Okay, to everything. What we have this week and next? What can I tell you? Vayered Shimshon Timnata. Vayar Isha Mi Timnata Mi Plishtim. So he goes to his parents and says, I found so this Philistine woman. I want to marry her. I want you to take her for me as a, as a wife. Vayomer lo avi 
says, what, you can't find a nice Jewish girl? You've got to go to the Philistines, these uncircumcised ones? What are you? What's wrong with you? Vayomer Shimshon Eloviv Otokachli Kihi Yashra B'yaynai I want you to take this one for me Kihi Yashra B'yaynai This is actually very important She is Yashra B'yaynai She is fitting in my eyes Okay Now This is actually a very important point about the parents We have the mother and the father The parents of this child throwing only child presumably and he goes off to the Philistines and he wants to marry, he sees this woman and he wants to marry her and when the parents object and they say they call the Philistines the the uncircumcised Philistines the Philistines more than any other nation are known in the Bible as Arelim we have time as we reflect upon that it's actually, it can't be a coincidence it can't be an accident it appears over and over again now, leave that to the side for now what is the meaning of he yashra b'yaynai? This strikes me as a very, very important expression in the story. Especially given the fact that the last verse of this book is Isha yashar People do whatever they want. So some have interpreted that yashra b'yaynai to be a negative. Because going your own little path against God's path is a negative. Isha yashar b'yaynai is certainly a negative in this book. However, as I said before, I don't believe it's true in this case. I believe in this case it's not negative. I'll get to this. Now the text says, the mother and the father did not know. This is all from God. That's a very important verse, I believe. They didn't realize it's a pretext from God. God is seeking, for He seeks a pretext. Who is the He is the question. A small H or big H, you know what I mean? Is it because God seeks a pretext? In other words, here's the question. The question would be, it's a very good question. It's hard to know. I don't have an answer. Is Shibshon aware of the fact? In other words, when you read the verse, it says that they didn't know this was from God. Parents did not know it's from God. Because God was seeking, he was seeking a pretext. Right? And at that time, the Philistines ruled Israel. So it could be read in two different ways. They're not so different, but what the difference would be, it's clear that this is all from God. And one way to read it is because God, because God is seeking a pretext, because the Philistines are ruling over Israel and they're God's people, so they have, you have no right to do that. They don't know that it's all part of God's plan. Or does it mean it's all from God and that Shimshon seeks a pretext because the Philistines are ruling over Israel? The difference between the two interpretations would be is Shimshon conscious of the fact that he's actually God's agent in this respect? Or is Shimshon unconscious? He's not aware of it. He sees this woman. He wants to take this woman. But this is all part of God's plan. Now what's interesting is that I would say that if I had to pick between these two interpretations it strikes me that the text is suggesting that Shimshon is aware because the text emphasizes that the parents don't know the father and <coughs> the mother and the father don't know that that this is from God 
it sounds like it's not conclusive I don't think it's extra ambiguous but one can read it that Shimshon is a conscious agent of God aware of, of what he has to do and that's why he says to the parents to take for me this particular woman she is fitting in my eyes which then carries with it a completely different meaning I would say because she suits my purposes and what his purposes are we will see very soon his purpose is not to live with this particular Philistine woman his purpose is to fight against the Philistines this is someone that is his entry point into the Philistine society but it will be someone around whom he can wage his wars and then the wars have nothing to do with the Jewish people at all the wars are about the, uh, the mistreated outsider, the wars are about the uh, defending his wife, the wars are about whatever but it's all, it's all personal it's all personal in any event this obviously is a very important a, a verse and they, the parents do not know now if we move ahead a bit let's skip the story now about the of course the famous story of the lion and the honey and all that leave that out for now and now we come when, when the next story we can skip as well we'll get back to it Shimshon is going to marry this woman and uh, when he um, he's going to make a, 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 a wedding party it's a Shem brachas. he's making a wedding, wedding party and at the wedding party he poses, a, he poses a riddle to the guests the riddle has to do with what happened to Shimshon before that when he's walking by himself apparently to uh, the Philistines his parents don't know from this whole thing and he sees the carcass of a lion and inside the carcass of the lion is a beehive the, the bees making honey for whatever reason that fascinates him and when he gets to the wedding party he poses a riddle the riddle and he says to the people at the party I'll tell you what if you can guess the riddle I will give you the 30, 30 men at the party I'll give you each one a coat but if you can't guess the riddle you have to give me a coat right he tells them the riddle and they can't figure it out so what happens is that these 30 guests are not too happy on the last day they say to his wife is this why you invited us here to cost us money? What is, what is this? You know, so they pressure her, and she, and she tells them the riddle. And the last day they solve the riddle, and Shimshon is very upset about this. Right? You, 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 you use my wife. He says he has his own expression for that. He's very angry. So what does he do? He goes to Aza, right? He goes up to Gaza, right? I'm sorry. He goes to Ashkelon in this case. He goes to Ashkelon in the Philistine cities and he kills 30 Philistines he takes their coats and he hands the coats over to the 30 guests at the wedding party okay and when that happens right and then he leaves the end of chapter 14 he leaves and the last verse and we'll come back to all this next week but the last verse of chapter 14 is Vati Eshet Shimshon Asher after he leaves his wife is handed off to somebody else. She's given to one of the to, to one of these friends. So one of the friends takes the wife. Okay. Shimshon now wants to come back to his wife. So he comes back to his wife in the beginning of chapter fifteen. 
and he, he, the, 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 the father of the, of, the, of, the, of the woman does not let him enter the father says to him in the second verse of chapter 15 I thought you hated her so I gave her off to you to your friend somebody else because I thought you didn't want her anymore you seem to, not to, to dislike her I mean after all she, did, she did, did, did give away a secret she did tell the solution to the riddle but you know what he says so I got somebody, you know somebody got a, he's got a sister a younger sister she's even better than this one so why do you take the younger sister instead of the other one right Shimshon though is very upset about this Okay. Says she, I've had it with you Philistines. It's kind of double dealing. It's not for me. And then he goes, of course, and he gets 300 foxes. He says it's this. Now, what's interesting is, what is this? When you read such a story, actually, it's very interesting. This story has an antecedent an obvious antecedent but it also has it also becomes the basis of another story there are three stories that are tied together each one casts a light on the other and they're very interesting the, the, the story that comes afterwards casts a very important light and I think actually fits in very well with my suggestion about Shimshon there are, there are three stories that come together the first one is the obvious story of Jacob in the house of Lavan they're two, they're, they're two sisters in that particular story, of course, the one he wants to marry is the younger sister. And instead of the younger sister, Yaakov finds himself married to the older sister. And Yaakov says to Lavan, what's going on? I worked seven years for the young Rachel, the younger daughter. And you gave me this other one. Says Lavan, what can I do? In our, in our place, we don't do these things. We don't, we don't do this, to give the younger before. The, but you know what? If you work for seven more years, I'll give you this one too. So he says, work for Sayyakov, work seven more years, and now he's married to both of them. That's one story. We're all familiar with the story. There is, however, very interestingly, another story, which is very much connected, I think, to the story of Shimshon. And the story is the following. There's another case of, a, of, a, of a, a man who has two, two daughters that are sisters and he wants or someone wants or he wants someone to marry his daughter and this story is very much connected to Shimshon's story so let's take a look at that it casts the light upon Shimshon and the Shimshon story casts the light upon that story this is found in the book of Shmuel let's find it here I believe it's chapter what page? I've got to find it. <laughs> Chapter 18. It's page 600... 613. Good number. 613. The story is this. David has slain Goliath in chapter 17. Before he slays Goliath, he's walking all around the battlefield asking a lot of questions, such as, what happens to the one who kills that giant over there? He asked so many people the question that it get back to the king. 
So you know the story. David probably goes out. He kills Goliath. And now, but after he kills Goliath, everybody is praise, singing David's praises. So Saul becomes very jealous of David. To the degree that he wants to kill David. But he doesn't want to kill David himself. How can you kill a national hero? So he has a different idea how to kill David. <coughs> so he goes to David in verse number 17 of chapter 18. It's a brutal story. For Yomashul el David, he nebi tihab hagadullah me rav, ato atenu chawisha, achayewi ben chayu, vilochem milchamot Hashem. Vishul amar, alti yodibo, utibo yad plishtim. So Saul said to David, I have my older daughter Meirav. You can marry my daughter Meirav on one condition. I want you to be a warrior, a valiant warrior, and fight the wars of God. And Saul said to himself, why should I kill the guy? Let the Philistines kill him for me. That's the plan. The plan is to marry him off to his oldest daughter and to fight the wars of God. We all know the wars of God are never ending. The holy wars. There's always a holy war, right? So, if Saul says to himself, I'll get this guy killed, and this will solve my problem. Who am I, he says, in my family? Who am I? I'm not worthy of this glorious honor, he says, that I should be the son-in-law of the king. By he... So it came to pass that at the appointed time of the marriage, apparently there was some time set, and David keeps on delaying and refusing and this and that, so she's given off to somebody else. Adriel Hamachovati. Adriel. But Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. It's the second daughter, younger daughter. When they told Saul, Saul, it was good in his eyes. Let me give her to him. She'll be a snare to him. The Philistines will kill him. This is not a man, I think, that you want to be your father at this point. You know what I mean? He's conspiring how to get your husband killed. You know what I mean? Anyway. David. Interesting expression. You can marry two, he says. Now, some interpret the second one. But it literally means two. Speak to David. Convince him. Everybody loves you. Be the son of... Wait, my son-in-law. Is it a small thing to be the son of the king? And I am a, a, a poor man and of light esteem. So Saul's servant said, that's what David said. The king doesn't want money. Keep a male or lot with a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. We know came by Oivea Melech. Vishol Choshav Lapilot David Biat Plishtim. And Saul thought to kill David. 
through the Philistines. When the people told David this, then it became suitable or fitting in David's eyes to be the son-in-law of the king. And the time wasn't up yet. According to the text we have, the Septuagint has a different text. We have David went out and killed 200 Philistines. The Septuagint had 100. I can say with certainty, I'm sure, 100% sure, that our text is a better text. For the simple reason, and it seems to make no sense, therefore you know it's right. It makes perfect sense, and I'll get to it in a second. But what is the point of the story? The story plays off two things. First of all, obviously, Jacob in the house of Lavan. But it also plays off the story of Samson, the man with the two daughters. And here's the point. Let's, take, let's start with David for a second. What is interesting in the story, the story is a terrible story, actually, if you reflect upon it, but it's very appropriate for us. You have here three people, basically two. You have Saul and you have David. Saul is this jealous man who wants to kill David, who's the beloved hero of the Jewish people. But he's afraid to kill him directly himself. He wants to kill him by sending him into battle and have the enemy kill him. That's his idea. An idea that David himself comes up with later in the book of Shmuel, but is very successful at it. He manages to murder probably one of his most noble officers, Uriah Saul, on the other hand, doesn't, is unsuccessful in this respect. Because David clearly sees through it. Now, so first he offers him to marry Merah. So David refuses to marry the older daughter. And the time has passed. Right? The days are up. So we can't. Now the second woman who loves David, she actually loves David, an unusual expression in the Bible, the woman who loved the man, says Saul, great news, should be a snare to him and I'll get him killed. So he makes an offer to David. And the, the final offer is, kill me a hundred Philistines. hundred Philistines and you can marry my, my, uh, my daughter. And this time David does it. No, he doesn't kill a hundred Philistines. He kills two hundred Philistines. By Yishar David, it was fitting in David's eyes. So what, what is going on in the story? Why is it fitting in David's eyes, first of all? Why does David accept the offer? The first offer he refuses, but he accepts the second offer. What is the difference between the first offer and the second offer? The difference is clear. The difference is the first offer has no end. Go fight the wars of God. Forget it. Wars of God. There's always wars of God. Holy wars all the time. So it's a never-ending struggle, in which case David understands at some point, who knows, someone's going to kill him. But the second is a finite number. Kill me a hundred. David doesn't only kill a hundred, he kills two hundred. Why does David kill two hundred? What? They're both five. It's interesting. It means you're married two today. In other words, the point is, the first wife was given... What does David really want in the story? What does David want? He, He says... Is it a small thing to marry the king's daughter? I'm an Ish Rush I'm an unimportant person. I'm an impoverished person. 
Who am I to marry the king's daughter? Little me. I'm so humble. Well, yeah. What does David actually want in the story? He doesn't just want to be the king's. He doesn't want to be the king's son-in-law. Well, he wants to be the king, maybe. But the point is, he wants to be the king's son-in-law. So the point is, what he's really doing in the story is saying, in effect, symbolically, not only is the second one mine, but the first one's also mine. That's b'shtayin titchatein biayom. And the point is, it's all a calculation on his part. But Tishar David, the expression by Yishar B'yein, this is my main point, by Yishar David is exactly parallel to what the book of Shemuel says about Saul when he finds out that Michal loves David. And that is by Yishar right? By Yishar B'yein And the number of days is not yet over. In other words, what's the point? What, what is the contrast in the story of, 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 of Michal and these two men around her? The two men, the term that's used for the David and Shaul both, is Vayishar X, which means it's it's sort of works for them, you know? Works for me. What what works? It works for Saul to marry his daughter off to man he plans to kill. To turn his wife into a widow, his young daughter into a widow, that works for Saul. What works for David is to use this woman to become the son in law of the king. In contrast to Vayishar B'Nei'etz, there's another verb that's used in the, in the story, which is Vate'ahav. There's one person who actually loves this guy. Nebuch. But the point is, it's Michal. She loves him, actually. But the contrast is between the two people who actually use her and the woman herself who's in love with, who's in love with David. It's exactly the contrast that the book of Shoftim uses in terms of Shimshon. Because when it comes to the, the, the woman from Timnah, by Yishar he she suits my purposes, and we now discover what the purposes are. She's, she's good for me. I can use her, this is what he's doing, I can use her to kill Philistines. But when it comes to Delilah, in the next chapter, by there he actually loves her. That's what gets him in big trouble, in the case of Shimshon, because he actually falls in love. The, the, the book of Shmuel uses both the Shimshon story of the two daughters, the older and the younger daughter, but at the same time it uses the story of Lavan in the most interesting way. Because one of the phrases that appears in the David story is this very bizarre expression, He, he completed the number of, of, of foreskins he gives the king, the word of the Malay which of course is exactly the language of Jacob in the house of Lavan. Malay Shavuazot. Fayim Malay Shavuazot. The three times you have it. To complete the days. In other words, David in the story of Shmuel is not the Jacob who's going to be tricked by his father-in-law. Quite the opposite. He's, David's very clever. Saul, this is the point that Robert Alter made and a very correct point about Saul, which is that the writer of the book of Shmuel tells us straight up what, what Saul was thinking. Transparent character. You know exactly what he's thinking. And Saul thought to kill David, the writer says so. When it comes to David, you never know. David of the book of Shmuel, you can never know exactly what he's thinking. You can suspect what he's thinking. But the, the, text, the text never actually fully pins him down. You never really know what David says. True that this story is a very important story because what it sounds like is David is saying one thing doesn't actually believe it. 
oh, I'm so, I'm so lowly, I'm so unimportant. But then I wanted, but I wanted me not just a son-in-law, but this son-in-law. And then later on, we have, of course, in the book of Shavuot, I can't get into it, how this book plays with these two terms. Anochi Rosh in the most, in a very cynical way, actually. So it's, but in any event, you have, coming back to Shimshon, you have the story over here of Shimshon is offered the younger one instead of the older one. But in this case, unlike Jacob, who marries both of them, in the case of Shimshon, he ends up marrying neither, which is perfectly fine for him because it wasn't that he wanted to marry any in the first place. It's not like Yaakov who loves Rachel. Um, but in the case of Shimshon, it's not love at all. It's Kihi Yashrabi She suits my purposes. The purpose is, as the text says, Toanahumvakesh, he, either Shimshon or God or both, looks for a pretext. And the pretext is the pretext is to kill the Philistines. That's what his role is. Now, let's get back to these two more elements here of the story of Shimshon, and next week we'll deal with maybe with the riddle and with uh, and with uh, and with Delilah, which is actually so the Shimshon story is is different from any other story that we have. There's nothing like Shimshon in the Bible. It's Superman, really, who is uh, who fights alone. The Shimshon, uh, when he goes to war, in verse number uh, four, Shimshon, so you have over here his, as a Shimshon's army Shimshon's army are as the foxes which means they are the animals which means they are the natural order that's a very important point I'll get back to that point in one second just wanted to complete one other thought about Shimshon the Philistines said who did this? who destroyed our, our, our crops? Oh, it must be Shimshon did this because his father gave his wife to somebody else. So the Philistines go and they kill his former wife or whatever she was and his, and his uh, and, 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 and her father. So they kill him and they 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 then Shimshon says, what? You kill my wife and my beloved father-in-law? How can you do such a thing? Right? So he goes and he smites them, he hits them with a great, a great victory against the Philistines. Shokai. So what's interesting is, in other words, he uses the father, the father and his daughter in every possible way. He's angry when the father gives them away, <laughs> but at the end of the story, he's going to avenge their deaths exactly the point that he made earlier and the Philistines response is very important in other words 
Why did he do this? No one is suggesting he is doing this because we are persecuting the Jewish people. It never dawns upon them. It's in, that's not the reason. It's all completely personal reason. It's about his relationship with his wife and, the, and her father and all that and the inner workings of the family. And this must be the cause of his great anger. And so therefore, the point being, never in the story is there a suggestion, whatever we may think, there's never a direct suggestion that he does this to defend Israel, to protect Israel or anything like that. It may have the effect of helping Israel, no question, but that's not his motive in the story. It's not set up the way from the very beginning. Somebody asked before about the name Shimshon, which is a very interesting, this is an interesting name, Shimshon. It strikes me, I have nothing profound to say about it, but it strikes me that the name Shimshon is related to the idea of Shemesh, son. And that the sun is this natural force, basically, that sustains life. And that what is, there's something about Shimshon, his power, his power is emerging from the fact that he has, he is a, I would say, kind of force of nature. He's a force of nature, and he surrounds himself with, and he fights together with the forces of nature. That's his only army. Interesting in this respect, I wonder about his wife, who eventually does him in. Her name is Delilah. And I wonder about the name Delilah. Now the word Dal actually means to be weak, actually. Dal is what is weak, right? But I wonder whether Delilah is not, not in the dictionary meaning, but then the word Delilah is the word Lila. You've got to wonder about this, about the, the Shemesh and the Lila as to whether it's not there's something about the story which is, has to do with his, his primordial power his power which emerges from the fact that he's, he's God's creation and that somehow Delilah is the one who darkens everything who, and of course he allows that to happen by, by, giving, away this, by giving away the secret the, uh, let me make one last point about this particular point about Shimshon and his relationship to the Jewish people. This is to be found in chapter uh, 15 in the ninth Pasuk. So the Philistines, they're out to catch, they're out to catch Shibshon. The Philistines came up and they pitched camp in uh, in Yehuda, they spread it over Lechi. Vayeru ish Yehuda, Lama alitem alenu. So the tribe of Judah said, the tribe of Judah in this book is the leading tribe. That's how the book begins. Who shall fight our wars for us? Who shall fight first? The tribe of Yehuda shall fight first. So Yehuda is the leading tribe. So the Judeans say to the Philistines. Why are you coming up against us? What, what do we do? We're, we're good citizens. We don't bother you. Vayomru lesar et shimshon alinu. Lasotlo kashera salanu. We have came up to tie up, to, to capture or tie up shimshon. And to do to him what he does to us. Vayedu shiloshet alafim ish miyuda. El seif sela etam. Vayomru shimshon. 
הרואי יודעת כי מושרים בנו פרישתים ומה זאת עשית לנו? 3,000 סולג'רס קאם וסרנד שמשון ואומרים לשמשון Don't you know the Philistines are ruling over us? What have you done to us? <coughs> right? Prishtim Moshrim B'Yisrael, we had this earlier. At that time the Philistines are ruling over Israel. That was God's, that was the reason that God is sending Shemshon in the first place. That God is seeking a pretext. Uprishtim Moshrim. So the Yehuda says to Shemshon, what are you doing? What are you making trouble for? So Shemshon says, ויאמרו להם כאשר עשו לי כן עשיתי להם שמשון says whatever they did to me I did to them which of course is exactly what the Philistines say he says what is in other words there's nothing to do with you he says you can read it two ways you can say why are you making trouble his answer is I'm paying back what they did to me I'm not making trouble I'm just or that's one way to read it in other words Or, is it, is, or simply, in other words, is, he, is, is, he, is it a matter of justifying what he's doing? Or is it a matter of personalizing what he's doing? It has nothing to do with you, he says. It's just, it's between me and them. It has nothing to do with you. Of course, the language, right, of the Philistines is exactly the same. The Plishtim and Shimshon are talking exactly the same language. It sounds like they had, we're dealing with him, he's dealing with us. But Israel is caught in the middle over here. That's the point. Israel re- represented by Yehuda, the leading tribe of Judah, right? The Lion of Judah. They go to the... What are you doing? They said, we have come to tie you up. To tie you up. And hand you over to the Philistines. I want you to swear to me that you yourselves will not harm me. You want to tie me up? I got no problem with that, he says. But you have to swear to me that you won't harm me. They said, no. Yes, no means yes. We have no intention of doing that. We're not going to harm you. We're not going to kill you ourselves. Just going to hand you over to the Philistines where you await your fate. We'll not be pleasant. So the, so the Judeans tie up Shimshon with, with, with powerful ropes, with new ropes. And that's it. This is actually a very important story for us. I mean, you think about it for a minute. What, what, what does this mean? boggles the mind really in other words this is the nausea in other words we're not going to kill you we're going to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines because after all you're making trouble because they're the Philistine is king and what's interesting is this idea of tying him up and handing him over of course appears later in the Shimshon story it appears in the very next and right the very next and last chapter of Shimshon There in that story, in verse number four, there where he meets Delilah, right? And the Philistines go to Delilah and they say to Delilah, 
we want you, we're going to give you a lot of money if you're able to, to, to hand Shimshon over to us. So Dulila has to figure out from where is this supernatural strength coming from. And what's interesting is, and I have to discuss this next week, at Shimshon, the, the, what the chapter reflects is the inner tensions, the inner struggles of Shimshon, should he tell her or not tell her. And he begins to say a piece of the truth, doesn't tell her the truth, until finally he can't take it anymore. She's nudging him to death. And maybe there's, the, there's also the human need to tell the truth. It's human need to confess or to, to tell the truth. And so eventually, eventually she tell, he tells her the truth. What's interesting is The truth is what? See? The Leela takes. Basically, what she does is she ties him up. You have over here this verb to tie up, which appears in chapter 16, in verse number 11. Imosor Yasuni Babotim Chadoshim, right? Twice the word Osar over there, right? You have it in verse 12, Atasrei Obahem. You have it in verse 12. You have it to three times over there, right? Three times you have it in, uh, in, in the, the first thing he says to her, and she actually ties him up. In other words, what you have in the story then is this very interesting parallel between on one hand the Philistines and the other hand the Jews. That in each case, Shimshon is both tied up by his own Jewish brothers, by the by, by Shevet Yehuda, that's in chapter 15. In chapter 16, he's tied up by his wife, his, who betrays him, who is, who is Delila, and which really underscores the very important point. It underscores, first of all, how separate this man is from everybody, but it also underscores, for our purposes, how not how so much not a Jew he is. I guess mean, they're not going to kill him, but on the other hand, he's tied up by his own people and hand it over to the enemy. So this is, this is the point of this Shimshon. He has, he has nobody actually. He has no... He's not, he, he fights with the, amongst the Pushtim and he lives amongst them for the purpose of fighting. That's clear. He, to personalize the battle. On the other hand, he, the, the Jews are not his people either. And the, the only story where he actually interacts with the Jews is the uh, story where the Jews try to kill him. There's no other, no other time where he's actually connected to them. This is the story of this. So, from a human perspective, I guess we could say, puts him in a very difficult situation. You actually have nobody. The only one he can rely upon is is the God who actually created him. And on two different occasions, he he uh, he uh, he prays. It's a uh, it's a, in a way a great tragedy. From a human perspective, there's an element of great tragedy over here. But. Um, this is his particular mission. It's not a mission that he necessarily accepted upon himself. It's a mission that is placed upon him. And he's not given a choice, really. It's not like one might argue that the others aren't given much of a choice either. But Moshe was given a choice. And Moshe was, yes, he wasn't really given a choice either. But he, God negotiates, God talks to Moshe, God convinces Moshe at the end of the day to take on this task, which Moshe accepts. He's many questions about it afterwards end of the day he accepts it and uh, you know he, he suits God's purposes yeah 
moral model. Totally. There's no other character like him. Right. There's no other about it. There's no one else like Shimsha. That's why I start with the snake today. He's completely and totally. He has nobody. And that's, by the way, the beginning of the story. Also, his mother and the father appear in the beginning of the story. The big emphasis. He doesn't tell his mother and father. In other words, the mother and the father represent his all his parents, and they're the Jewish people. But he actually cannot tell them the truth. He can't confide in them the real reason. On the other hand, when his first wife says to him, tell me the meaning of the riddle, which we'll go back to next week. Remember what he says to them? He says to his wife, if I didn't tell my mother and father, I'm going to tell you. I didn't. So you see straight out. In other words, in his thinking, right? His thinking is, my allegiance is basically to them. That's what he's saying. I'm, the people to him have a real allegiance. I didn't tell them the truth. Then I'm going to tell you, this Philistine, your Philistine woman, I'm going to use my purposes. Why would I tell you? You see that between these two options, in other words, you see between them that fundamentally he is Jewish in the sense he sees himself as part of that people. He's coming from them, he has his parents. The tribe of Yehuda swear you won't kill me yourselves. You know what I mean? That's all. It's fine. You can tie me up. What? But Yehuda not killing Joseph, but in a way handing him over. Right. Totally right. That's a very good point that it doesn't speak well for Yehuda. No, no, there's a condemnation of, of, of Israel in general, both in terms of Manoah, in terms of Yehuda. I mean, totally the condemnation. And God, as I said, is not... Re- and, and, there's no, and there's no desire to be, to be different. There's, there's no sense in the story whatsoever that Israel is not perfectly content with the status quo, namely, Moshlin Bono Pushtim. God is not content. The, the sacrificial victim over here has got to be Shimshon, who was chosen for this particular mission. That's his job. And there's a great tragedy to the story. But that's, you know, and there's it it is no character like him from many perspectives. And the aloneness is extreme. And there's no choice either. He's not given a choice over here. This is, his, this is the job. He's, been, he's born into the world to do this. And that's what he has. That's the mission. Yeah? Is there any sense that is he finally revealing the secret? I will see. We'll, we'll discuss that next week. It's a very good question. To what extent does he suspect? That's not totally clear to me. So for next week, I want to we'll deal with the story of Delilah next week. And I do want to get back to the riddle. The idea, the idea of general riddles is very interesting. One of the features that we have in the Shimshon story: epigrams and uh, and uh, and uh, riddles. And then a, a brief reflection on prayer in the Shimshon story would be in order as well. Okay, we'll stop here.